Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you can, consider dropping us a dollar a month there, or if not, leave us a review on iTunes. But today we have Matthew Flissfader, Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Communications at the University of Winnipeg, where he teaches courses on communication theory, popular culture critical theories of discourse and ideology, and critical studies of social media. And today we have brought Matthew on to discuss his work, Algorithmic Desire. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Matthew. We're really looking forward to discussing your your book. This is something that's very near and dear, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, having studied social media for my graduate degree. And then I think it's actually funny because this is a way that actually Taylor and I, we actually met through Twitter. We can kind of talk about this a little bit, but I, I've it's kind of ironic that a lot of my in real life friends, including my current roommate, I have met on Twitter. So <laughs> no, that's interesting. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm really looking forward to having our conversation. That's a it's interesting the way that um, you know the IRL and the online worlds are are you know bridging in mm-hmm. you know this new uh, internet of not internet of things, but internet of people now. Cooper and I do, you know, because as you pointed out, and as everyone knows, there are a lot of, there could be a lot to be said about how social media can be immiserating, but then there are these nice opportunities to meet people to, I don't want to use the the tired trope of networking, but that, but it's, it's nice to, when you have those encounters and meet new people, and I came across your book when I, I saw someone else tweeting about it and saying they were going over it with their students and how they found it interesting. And so, you know, I kind of, I was able to, to get a copy, look through it and say, I really think this is cool. And then I saw that you were on Twitter. So that's another way that it was just an easy way that we could interact without having to go through other channels. So, I mean, there are still positive aspects to social media. And I think that that's part of the, one of the threads of your book, right, is, which we'll get to in a moment. I know that we always like to start with sort of the uh, the origin story of your interest in the many things you're interested in. Obviously, social media is one thing that's just omnipresent, but more so in terms of perhaps theory, Lacanian psychoanalysis, Marxist theory, you know, do you have some anecdotes or any anything you want to tell us about how you sort of got into philosophy and and all these other things that, that you bring together in this book? First, I have to say that the idea of origin stories, I, you know, I want to feel like a superhero, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if it'll be as exciting as that. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's 
nothing crazy or out of the ordinary. I had spent most of my undergraduate and early graduate studies focused mostly on film and media and popular culture. I think from my undergraduate, I'd always been really interested in a lot of the British screen theory that was influenced by Louis Althusser. And mm -hmm. I think it was really initially by via Althusser that I became interested in Marxism. Although I remember very much early on in my second year of university, I had a wonderful professor of a course on film culture and society that really did a great job of introducing some of the, you know, classic Marxist theory of base and superstructure, reproduction of the means of production, mm -hmm. interpolation of subjectivity. And that always, you know, really fascinated me. And I was very fascinated in the way that you could think about that through the analysis of film and culture. But there was always something about Althusser's theory of interpolation and subjectivity that didn't really sit well with me. I mean, I was sitting there thinking, you know, well, how does, you know, how does ideology zap itself into the mind? How does that really, how does that process really function? How does it really work? So it was really around in the middle of my master's degree that I discovered sublime object of ideology and I got interested in Zizek's work. So that by the time I was in my doctoral studies, I sort of realized that what I wanted to do was to think about Zizek's writing on film, cinema, popular culture as a way to kind of rejuvenate a lot of what the early screen theorists, so I'm talking about people like Laura Mulvey, Stephen Heath, Colin McCabe, Peter Woolen, those folks, even some of the French precursors like Christian Metz. I was really trying to think about how Slavoj could resuscitate what they were trying to do in terms of theories of ideology and subjectivity in the cinema. Now, the other thing to remember is I also have a background in cultural studies and the work of Stuart Hall, particularly his very famous essay, Encoding, Decoding, which I take up in the social media book. That had a huge influence on me as well in thinking through the Althusserian problematic about, again, what happens in situations of failed interpolation. That was something that was very fascinating and uh, interesting to me. So my doctoral work was focused on using Zizek's work to revive and resuscitate a kind of Lacanian Marxist theory of ideology via the cinema. Now, the other thing is that when I was defending my doctoral dissertation, it was the, the person that I had started reading more because her work was really being taken up in media and communication studies, which is my background, is the work of Jody Dean. And she ended up being the external examiner on my doctoral dissertation. And I started reading more and more. I, I graduated roughly around the time that her book Blog Theory came out, and I was very fascinated and influenced by that book. But there were some points of disagreement that I had with her understanding of the Lacanian categories of desire and drive, and specifically the idea of the demise of symbolic efficiency, which she takes up via Zizek, and I take up in relation to Frederick Jameson. So it was really through her influence and trying to build off of what she was doing, but also in some kind of a disagreement with her, write about social media. So it was immediately after I finished working on my film book on Zizek and film, which was based on my doctoral dissertation, that I immediately thought, I want to try to think about what I was doing with film, but in relation to social media and in part as a response to the great work that Jody Dean was doing, but also again, in a kind of a camaraderie disagreement with some of the, I guess, more esoteric, but I still think vital dimensions to her theoretical approach to internet culture, blog culture, and social media in general. And then again, you know, I've been, a, a, you know, I've been active on social media since MSN Messenger and Facebook <laughs> and all of those things. So it just seemed like a fit. And at the time, that was something that I was really interested in. And I want to think about beyond the standard sort of 
political economic critiques of social media that we saw in a lot of the 2000s, not just with Jody Dean's work, but also people like Christian Fuchs. I thought that we were missing was a good philosophical and theoretical understanding of social media as ideology. So that's, I guess you could say, is the origin story of the work. I do think it's it's great to see that trajectory, especially with the notion of the of this this question of symbolic efficiency, which is animating the the opening chapters, and you know that was something that gave me a lot of pause of thinking through one of the threads of the book, which comes out as you pose it provocatively, but you also tarry with it, and you you kind of um, give maybe some some qualifications, which is this question about how social media doesn't does not exist in the way in which the Lacanian big other does not exist. Is this something that that you develop out from this notion of uh, this loss in symbolic efficiency, as you've pointed out, this idea of social media does not exist, which was to me like that was very that, like stood out and I thought it was was brilliant. Um, I guess that that's that would be something I would want to talk through because I, I found that fascinating about this tension between that sort of that knowledge on the one hand, but on the other hand, this this perpetual need to kind of resurrect the quote unquote big other in order to allow for these coordinates in which desire and enjoyment can can sort of take place. Let me just speak to that for a second, because I think there's a few overlapping threads when we're talking about this notion of a demise of symbolic efficiency, or I think uh, Dean refers to it as a decline of symbolic efficiency, beginning in her book, Publicity's Secret, which is kind of a, a critique, I would say, of Habermas and the idea of the, the public sphere and communicative action or communicative rationality or communicative rationalism. And I think that's where Dean comes up with her idea of communicative capitalism as a rhetorical to Habermas, Habermas's communicative rationalism. Beginning in there, she talks about some demise of or decline of symbolic efficiency. But I also think about it, not just, she takes it up from, it's a section uh, near the end of Zizek's 1999 book, The Ticklish Subject. But I also think that it's helpful to read it through the way that somebody like Frederick Jameson has understood postmodernism in some ways through a Lacanian lens and also grappling with uh, some of the central tenets to Louis Althusser's theory of ideology. So in Jameson's postmodernism work, initially the you know very famous essay, Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism, which he then later expanded into a book. In that work, he uses, he calls it the it's from Lacan, Lacan's notion of psychosis or schizophrenia, and he's taking it, of course, from Deleuze and Guattari here, that mm-hmm. uh, Lacan describes psychosis as a breakdown of the signifying chain. So in some ways, what you have is the Lacanian symbolic, the symbolic order as the field of language, meaning, understanding, representation, that there's something that takes place in postmodernism, uh, culturally, or postmodernity, historically, you can kind of get it in that very famous, you know, statement from Jean-François Lyotard, to understand postmodernity or postmodernism as an incredulity towards grand narrative or big mm-hmm. narrative history. 
you know, it kind of overlaps in the postmodern moment with a lot of the railing against, you know, the central underlying points of signification that tie meaning and language and understanding and history all together. And both on the left and the right in postmodernity, you have this challenge, you know, to ideology, to, you know, the theories of the end of ideology, end of history, that we no longer have big grand narratives of history. We just have local parallel, little minor narratives of history. We have, we move away from the macro, macro politics to micro politics in Foucault. And so, forth. So when Jameson's describing postmodernism as a breakdown of the signifying chain, even, you know, the undermining of, um, you know, phallocentric authority, patriarchal authority, that the breakdown of the signifying chain is a way of describing how we no longer have this, you know, universal central point or target against which we're railing that everything exists in parallel with each other. In an interesting way, Jameson uses this as a, a kind of a retort to Althusser, because in Althusser's theory of ideology, he describes ideology as an imaginary representation of the subject to its real conditions of existence. Mm -hmm. So you have in that in that phrase, the two dimensions of the Lacanian imaginary and the real, but as Jameson points out, the symbolic goes missing. So what he tries to do with his notion of cognitive mapping, in a way, is a return to the form of the symbolic, but at the level of the interpretation which if you read it through his other work, Political Unconscious, for instance, what we're missing is we need a return to big narratives of history that when he says always historicized, it's almost a call to return to a way to not regain the symbolic order in the sense that, you know, you have it in liberalism or in capitalism, but that what the Marxist project, the socialist or the communist, whatever you want to call it, project requires is an historical narrative that allows people to position themselves within existing conditions, but in the broader scheme. I don't want to go on too long, but I think that this is an important background to understanding then how Zizek takes up this idea of demise of symbolic efficiency in the ticklish subject. Because one of the things he says, and the, the chapter that opens where that, that line comes from, is a critique of Foucault and Judith Butler. And he has this statement, he says that perversion is not subversion. Right. And I think that you get the sense of it when you understand in the Lacanian sense that so much of the logic of perversion has to do with forms of resistance. But part of that form of resistance is you require still some target against which you're resisting. So there's a dimension of perversion in its masochistic and even its sadistic forms where you have to put in place some figure of authority against which you can resist. And that's still something that helps to propel your desire. Now, this is where you can get the difference between my approach and the approach of Jody Dean, because her argument is this idea that, from her perspective, she argues that the demise of symbolic efficiency exists, and therefore, nobody any longer believes in the authority of the symbolic order or the big other. From her perspective, we all already accept that the big other does not exist, which is, in fact, the Lacanian way of understanding the end of analysis. As Zizek argues in places like, for they know not what they do, what happens at the end of analysis, when we accept that the big other no longer exists, we move from a logic of of desire into one of drive. Drive is the way in which we relate to our enjoyment at the point at which we realize that the object of desire is itself impossible and we can continue desiring, but in the form of the drive. Now, for me, this is a little bit problematic if we all already accept that the big other no longer exists and that ideology is a mechanism, is or organized around a mechanism of drive, then it's it almost to me reads as a way of saying that ideology is no longer a problem. And I think that to some extent, you know, 
that might be true in the sense that in postmodern conditions, we've all become sort of realists, capitalist realists, if you want to use the Mark Fisher term, in the sense that we're not really duped by ideology. We know that there are big problems of economic exploitation. We know that there are problems of racism and um, heterosexism and fascism and all of these things, environmental problems. Who is not aware of all of these things, right? The problem is, and this is something that Zizek explains early on in Symbiom Object of Ideology, the problem is we know all of this, but nevertheless, we continue to act as if we didn't. That's the logic, the fetishistic logic and perversion of je sais bien, mais quand même. I know very well, but nevertheless. So part of my argument here in, in thinking about this, this idea of the demise of symbolic efficiency is tied to the way that in the form of perversion, we are all, in a sense, willing back into existence, the form of the big other on social media platforms. So just to, and, and you asked, a, it seems like a small question, but you asked a very big question. So oh, no. I want to get back sorry. to the point. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry, because I, I know, I go I go on it a lot, and, you know, you'll have to, you know, get a big hook and drag me off uh, <laughs> stage here, but I do want to get to the point you, you raised. Yeah. Because you asked about this overlap between my statement, social media doesn't exist, the big other doesn't exist, and even, you know, when... And Leclau and Mouf, they say that society, you know, they have, it's sort of like a weird mirroring of Margaret Thatcher. Right. They say society doesn't exist, or they say that society is not a valid object of discourse. I think that the benefit of Slavoj's reading, I see Slavoj because he's a friend, but uh, Zizek's reading of this situation is that it's not simple enough. It's not, it's too simple to say that society doesn't exist or the big other doesn't exist because what we have to grasp is the reason why there is an impossibility of having a full, complete closure, even in the old, I'm going to be reductive, but in the old 20th century version of Hegelian Marxism, this notion of um, reconciling into a completed totality at the end of history, that this is impossible insofar as, well, for one thing, ontologically, if we understand reality as itself impossible and always incomplete, Mm -hmm. but politically in the way that the class struggle is a sign of the political contradiction at the heart of the social. So that when we say society doesn't exist in the way that Leclau and Mouffe do, for instance, we should add to that, that it doesn't exist as a complete closed whole, because it is always fissured by political antagonism and contradiction in the form of the class struggle. So when I say that that social media doesn't exist, it's an overlap with this idea of society doesn't exist in the way that Leclau and Mouffe and Zizek elaborate on. It's also a way to say that the big other doesn't exist. The problem for us is that ideologically, we continue to act as if it did exist, because it's one of the ways in which our access to our enjoyment via the resistance against some kind of authority in some sense, the symbolic order helps to procure it in that logic of desire. I hope some of that made sense. I I know that I said a lot of things there. I thought that was great, actually. And I know that one of the reasons why it was a big question, but I think that so much of this is is really necessary to get us sort of a a ground level to to begin diving deeper into your argument. And so what I liked about this notion of this is the fact that you deploy social media in a number of ways in, in terms of a signifier, which is one of the questions I had about the signifier for the sort of hegemonic ideology. You also... And that's a question, obviously, we can get into at some point. Another big question, I'm, uh, you know, that's that's just a broad topic for us to discuss. I liked how book ended. Your book is sort of on both ends, begins with this notion of the question of remaining faithful, not giving up on 
not giving up on the on the social media metaphor, right? Not giving up on the social in social media because there is a tendency to see social media as antisocial, but as you kind of pointed out, it's sort of the driving antagonisms of capitalism that makes that's antisocial. And so I guess that would be a related question if you feel it's related, this notion of sort of accelerating the the metaphor of social media, not giving up, not ceding ground relative to the desire for quote unquote social media? It's a great question. I love that question because it makes me feel like some of the provocations I develop in the book are actually hitting. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I guess the the, the the first thing to explain is that there's two different ways that I'm looking at social media in the book. And I think that there's a lot of work, and I'm kind of continuing it in some ways. There's a lot of work already on the materiality, the material and systemic and structural dimensions of social media as a material system, mm-hmm. right? That is definitely a system that is basically organized in terms of the capitalist mode of production and the capitalist relations of production, and specifically in terms of the neoliberal policy regime and ethic towards subjectivity. So there's the that material dimension of social media that I try to talk about and expand in some ways. But there's also, I think, an important rhetorical and discursive dimension to social media. And this is a this uh, this is something that I was engaging in methodologically in the book, but something that having finished the book, I finished the book around 2019. And after finishing it, thinking more reflexively about the methodology that I was applying in my analysis here, that there's definitely, from my perspective, a dialectical form of investigation of this the materiality of social media via the concept or the metaphor, as I put it, of social media in a way that helps to develop an imminent critique of social media. Because I think that when we use the term, the metaphor, the concept of social media, many of us, I guess, popularly, popularly, the idea is that social and social media is meant to signify that, you know, we're interactive, we're engaged with each other, we're in dialogue with each other, we're having critical, rational debate, hopefully, right? That's the idea. We talk about social media, as opposed to say, you know, pre-internet media, television, the newspaper, which there is a degree of interactivity. You know, you can always have letters to the editor in the newspaper. You can have call-in shows on TV and radio, but the pace and the spread of the interaction was limited compared to what we get on the internet. So there's a kind of a techno-utopianism that's implied in the very concept of social media. Now, There's, of course, a huge body of literature now that's trying to argue, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but trying to argue that social media is making us antisocial, that the platforms are turning us into big bad people who always want to just argue with each other and troll each other, and it's making us angry and frustrated. And there's claims that we should just abandon the concept of social media because it's really not social at all. And the reason why I want to stick to the metaphor of social media and why I say in the end that our goal should not be to abandon but to accelerate the metaphor of social media is because I think that it's only via the concept, the metaphor, or the rhetoric of the social and social media that we're capable of building an imminent critique of the material problems in the system to the extent that we can start to understand that our problem is not the platforms themselves. And I do think that it's worth pointing out that there are definite benefits, not only to social media platforms, but to algorithmic media and technology more generally, 
that the deeper we look into this, we see that the problems that we have with our social media platforms are not problems with the media or the technology, but they're problems with the political and economic, the mode of production under which they're being developed and organized, which is the capitalist mode of production. It's capitalism that's making us antisocial. It's capitalism and neoliberal capitalism in particular is making us competitive and individualistic in many different ways, not just, you know, the, the idea of being an entrepreneur of the self or being the influencer or you know, life streaming, but even in the form of the troll. And if you think about the troll as an individual who's trying to build their reputation by tarnishing the reputation of other people, this is something that, you know, reputation management is something that is very much a product of the cultural logic of neoliberal capitalism. For me, it's very important to stick to the concept of social media because I don't think, I think that without it, we would be less able to develop the kind of imminent critique that we require of the capitalist system. In some ways, I feel that there's a similar, you know, it's similar to what, I don't think it gets discussed enough, the way that Marx's capital Marx's capital is often read as a political economy, at least in my field, in media and communication studies, people often read Marx's capital as political economy or even critique of political economy. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's important to realize that what Marx is doing in capital, maybe some will disagree, that what Marx is doing in capital is not just a material analysis of the capitalist mode of production, but it's an imminent critique of bourgeois ideology, the bourgeois categories of, of freedom and equality, that if this is what bourgeois society is telling us is in existence, Marx's capital is a materialist and imminent critique of bourgeois ideology itself. You're saying that society is this, well, materially it shows that we can't have freedom and equality because liberalism, which institutes capitalism, reproduces forms of exploitation that require inequality. So it's a way of showing through a dialectical and imminent materialist critique that bourgeois ideology is fissured with contradictions. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, not to compare myself to Marx, but methodologically, I think that there's something similar happening in algorithmic desire. I do like that. And it actually... Just that point of your way of seeing what is going on, that that actually brings in relief some of the points you make about this. It's sort of this move from modernism with, I know that you're working with Jameson and a bunch of other thinkers, but this this point about, say, modern art being anti-bourgeois and this move to postmodernism with all of its incumbent problems that my point being was basically with this move from modernism to postmodernism, with this move towards, I guess, the context in which you develop your approach at the beginning of the book is contrasting your new structuralist approach, which sort of keeps room for subjects, keeps room for structures, and, and sort of revitalizes this thinking versus, say, some of the approaches of new materialisms or of assemblage theory or of accelerationism. I was wondering about just, you know, without necessarily having to specify the lineage of all three of those, or just, I was really wondering about what you see as lacking perhaps in just the general sort of theoretical trend on the left, if you will, if I'm kind of contextualizing contextualizing that correctly, and what is, what is implied by the, by the new structuralist in the subtitle of your book? Yeah, no, I really, really appreciate that question. So, uh, yeah, so I don't want to give the whole, you know, genealogy of those concepts, new materialism, post-humanism, assemblage theory, accelerationism, all of those things, right. 
It's interesting because in hindsight, okay, in hindsight now, most of the work that I'm doing right now is centered on trying to rethink a dialectical humanism, which of course is, a, you know, the, the arch enemy of structuralism, you know, from Levi-Strauss to Althusser to many of the so-called post-structuralist Foucault, Deleuze, Guattari, mm -hmm. Derrida, and so forth. Now, this might sound... Again, maybe maybe folks disagree. But the way that I read structuralism, French structuralism of the 1960s, I guess you could put it, you know, the way that Levi Strauss puts it is that the goal of the of the human sciences is not to construct but to destroy the human subject. And I see that a lot in even the way that Louis Althusser describes, you know, ideology produces the subject. Subjects are interpolated by ideology. The subject exists only within the structure of the discourse. This is something that's particular to Foucault. And I even think in Deleuze and Guattari, you see, you know, which, you know, huge influence on new materialist assemblage thinking, accelerationism, that you see again that subject is conceived as a sort of an epiphenomenon of the of the developments within the structure. So the way that I understand, uh, or the way that I try to describe a new structuralism, very much influenced by Zizek's work and his collaborators in the Ljubljana school, uh, Milan Dolar and Alenka Zupancic, is to think of the structure as an incomplete totality. To think about right. the structure as, you know, as, as you, you know, you said, what's lacking? Well, lack is, you know, we're we should positivize the lack in this way to mm -hmm. grasp the fact that and this is part of this, you know, going back to that idea of society doesn't exist because it's fissured by the political contradiction. That right. every structure is always fissured by contradiction. And in this way, subject is what emerges in the point of lack or contradiction within the structure. And I guess Mladen Dolar has a really great line in an old essay called Beyond Interpolation, where he says that for Althusser... Subject is a product of ideology, but for Lacan, subject emerges where ideology fails. In the sense even of hysteria, hysteria is a way of describing failed interpolation. So for me, when I talk about new structuralism, it's a it's an attempt to try to get away from the the notion of subject that is a, a byproduct or an epiphenomenon of the structure, and to think subject as the grasping of the moment of contradiction internal to the structure. That's a good chunk of it. I think that's great. And, you know, I, I know that I will want to circle back to this, but I also want to let, let Coop, uh, Coop jump in and, and I know he has some questions prepared and had some, some sections to look at in the book. If you're cool with just, uh, sort of dialoguing with us. Yeah, for sure. It's about. Yeah. I wonder if it would be good perhaps to maybe this would be a good way to segue into kind of this difference between kind of how you see because you do sort of agree that there are kind of there's a machinic element to the social media and desire, but that it is sort of secondary. And I think that is maybe the, a way to move forward from kind of what you just went over in terms of this structuralism. Would you I mean, do you, do you kind of agree there at all? I agree. Or is that jumping too far ahead? <laughs> I just I, I want to you know at least I think no I I, I think it's a great it's a great point to bring to to raise that aspect because I was thinking back to to you know you kind of described this and you mentioned Marx's fragment on machines from the Grandrisa and um, this is something we had looked at in concert with Guattari's what was it the frag it's not the fragment on what is that it's machine and machine structure, and structure yeah. machine and structure and uh, you know essentially the the point or the what kind of the synergy I saw with regard to Marx and Guattari here was the way that for Guattari and Deleuze, the, the, like you're saying, kind of 
throughout to say the the subject is kind of like the residue of the of a process of a process of ideological interpretation perhaps for Althusser for Deleuze and Guattari it's about the desiring machine is kind of the is primary and then the subject is kind of the secondary residue that accretes at the kind of the edges of the desiring machine and I sort of drew a comparison here in the way that Marx in that fragment on machines describes the way that sort of individuals or or humans or the human operators or workers are so, or sort of these things that kind of accrue at the gaps between each machine to kind of help them traverse that little whatever that gap uh, that constituent the conscious, gap, op- the conscious operators right, right yeah exactly and so I I saw kind of a similarity there as far as this sort of being on the periphery of this. Of this primary process, which I guess would be capitalism, right? The generation of surplus value and surplus desire. Just to build on that, how do you see how do you see, I guess, these machinic processes fit versus ideology? And kind of what do you see about ideology that is that makes you, you know, confident that it's more of a primary aspect? And and I guess that involves class struggle, which you focus on quite a bit in the book as well. Have I given you enough? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. There's layers here, right? And there's, you know, various points, there's various threads that are overlapping here. Now, I guess the, the the difficult question to ask is how do we assume priority in terms of, you know, the Deleuze and Guattari from Thousand Plateaus in particular, that idea of machinic enslavement? How can we assume priority, you know, that or the form of social subjection, which they also talk about in right. Thousand Plateaus? Um, Maurizio Lazzarato develops it um, in different ways. And again, it's complicated. It depends on your 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 starting point here. The central argument I want to make, and I guess this is where I differ from some of the assemblage theory, which to me reads as suggesting that what is called social subjection is seen to be a secondary process where individuals are interpolated out of out of a bigger machine so that when we are interpolated as subjects the argument is we are taken out of i mean it's a weird way of phrasing it but machinic enslavement as i understand it it sounds bad but it's actually the the more positive sign that we should be included into this big mega machine that we're all contributing however i i think that again it's a little too I guess I would say it's a little too utopian for my liking, if I can put it that way. And I hope I'm not offending people uh, by saying that in the sense that I guess one way that I I guess I would distinguish between Lacan Hegel versus Deleuze and Guattari is I do think that they, I mean, people often talk about there's no point of negation in the work of Deleuze. And I don't entirely agree with that mm. because I think that the what you see in the work of Deleuze and Guattari in particular, I'm thinking about the capitalism and schizophrenia books specifically, right. is it almost seems as the, you know, there's an ethic of still constant negation, that there's forms of power that are interpolating us out of this machinic assemblage that we have to negate so we can return back to this flat, you know, to you know what's the Delanda term, you know, flat ontology mm-hmm. that we are emerging out of out of the machine, we become subjects and we should negate that power and go back into the flat versions. Now, the problem I have with that, I guess, is that I don't think that we can, we are included into the assemblage of the machine before we have already emerged as subjects of desire. So I think that 
you know, and there is, you know, the the aspect of the social and the symbolic order, again, which is always fissured by antagonism, contradiction, and lack. I think that that's an aspect of how we are interpolated into subjects. But subject for me here is still very much an ethical and a radical characterization that is not a point of emergence out of the bigger machine, but it's something that you arrive at once you grasp the contradiction that exists within the social symbolic order itself. So a lot of this is a way to not try to diminish that dimension of subjectivity as an ethical and an emancipatory character. And part of that means for me that becoming subject, before you can enter into what Deleuze and Guattari called machinic enslavement, we have to already be established as desiring subjects. I think that there's a priority to being interpolated as desiring subject before we can enter into the the assemblage form of machinic enslavement very much in the way that algorithmic logic on plat- on social media platforms for instance operate that we're not integrated into it until we're already existing as desiring subjects right with a certain relation to our enjoyment and, and i don't and, and again yeah. i don't know if that contrasts with other views of Deleuze and Guattari and i'm certainly open to conversation about it <laughs> You know, I found I found without arguing about about their work <laughs> because because I think that that to a certain extent I found persuasive your argument that by putting the priority back on subjection versus as you said, Lazarado, Deleuze, Guattari, and and some other thinkers, you you are putting back you're putting back to the center of this uh, the you're putting back in focus the question of of the antagonism at the heart of the social, right? You're, you're, you're making sure that that doesn't get lost. That seems to be one of the, the worries in this question about which has priority is that sometimes class antagonism, class struggle can get lost or even become at, at, at best become secondary. Is that, is that, was I reading some of that argument yeah, and, correctly? And- no, 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 that makes sense. And I guess one thing I didn't actually finish, I didn't finish a uh, uh, train of thought here. When I talking about the function of negation in Deleuze, I think that negation is always against, you know, the power that's pulling us out of the flat existence of the assemblage or the machine or whatever you want to call it. Whereas in Lacan and Hegel, I want to stress also that it's actually the negative, the lack, the negation is in a way uh, a priority, right? Mm-hmm. So that I think that the, if you wanted to distinguish between a Lacanian approach and a Deleuzean approach, and I'm saying Lizian broadly, because I don't mean to be excluding Guattari here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, if you wanted to think about it that way, that for Deleuze, it seems as though there's a uh, some form of a positive existence that is prior, and then we negate all the things that disrupt that. Whereas for Lacan, we negate, we negate, we negate only to come at the end to realize that there's that lack, the incompleteness of reality is what's central here. Right. And that's part of the process, not just of subjection or social subjection, but also or subjectivization, people call it sometimes. But it's really the process of the emergence of the subject as the lack in the structure. That subject is very much coinciding, overlapping with a recognition of the incompleteness to reality, incompleteness to the structure. And I actually think that's a very liberating idea here, because what it suggests is that once I reach that point of knowing that there's that my destiny has not been decided ahead of time, I feel like I'm channeling Doc Brown at the end of Back to the Future Part 3. <laughs> my destiny hasn't been decided at time, but that gives me the freedom to act and to change the material conditions in which I exist. 
right? Without guarantees. There's no guarantees that what I do is going to, you know, resolve the tensions here, but it does say that I have the freedom to do this. And every act I do, every choice I make is also at the same time, the negation of various other choices that every time I make a, make a choice, I'm not getting everything. I'm not returning to this plenitude of a flat material assemblage of, you know, of whatever, but every time I choose and make a choice and act in a certain way, I'm again, still losing something. I'm always still lacking something. This is one of the reasons why I say now in a lot of my work that alienation is constitutive of our freedom, that Mm -hmm. every free act always already implies the loss and being alienated from all of the other options I didn't choose, right? right? So it's always the restaging of the lack or the incompleteness in material reality. I hope that makes sense. I think so. And and it it kind of, again, brings to relief some, some of the the arguments you make in, in your book. And I will agree with you that there is negation in uh, Deleuze because, you know, one of the, before the first two positive tasks of schizoanalysis, it's, it's about destroying, right? It's these destructions, exactly. these, the, the curatage of the unconscious, as they call it. Um, Real, no, railing what, against the, railing against the despotic signifier. I don't understand. I don't see how, understand how you can see that as anything but an act of negation. Right. The other point was I liked how you brought in Zizek with, for example, when you you brought up, um, for example, you, you brought up Jews, this context in which, you know, we are we are left without any way out insofar as it's power and our resistance to power that subjectivizes us. But to a certain extent, you bring in Zizek, you bring in Lacan and make this argument about interpolation. The subject appears when interpolation fails or ideology fails. I was wondering if you could... That was something that, that that got me thinking a lot, and I'm just wondering if that kind of uh, extends some of the things you've said to us today just a moment ago about this this question of navigating freedom. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a simple answer. I think that typically there's a sense from Althusser forward, Foucault forward, I think that typically we think of subject as a product of ideology and power, whereas for me, reading Zizek using Lacan to rethink Hegel, for instance, subject for me is a liberatory category. Subject is what emerges at a point of um, thinking emancipatory ethics, that there cannot be any kind of emancipatory ethics without a subject that emerges through a moment of failure in the ideology. Right. right. So, I mean, so that's, you know, very, in very simple terms, that's where I see the difference. Go ahead. No, I think that there's a lot, a lot of, um, I mean, I guess you could even say, you know, from Althusser's perspective, and I'm spending a lot of time thinking about Althusser's version of a structuralist Marxism versus what um, the critique of humanism that he has, humanism as a moral philosophy versus a kind of a structural and dialectical analysis of capitalism as a science. And I don't think that you can actually even, I mean, I I try to think of of humanism in the category of subject also as a scientific and ethical as opposed to moral category, ethical in the sense of thinking about the relation between necessity and freedom. And I don't Mm -hmm. think you can have a, a dialectical science of ideology and power and exploitation without beginning from the position of I guess, an ethical dimension of what is necessary for the conditions of our freedom. Now, I think that in Althusser, he might still say that the that every historical moment might still interpolate us as a particular subject that wants to eliminate capitalism in one way or another. So subject is still a product of ideology, the communist ideology, I guess, maybe, I don't know, in that sense. Right. But I think that 
another way to read the subject via Zizek's understanding of Lacan and Hegel is to think about it not as being this product of ideology, but as reaching this moment of what in psychoanalysis in Lacan you call subjective destitution, where I've done all this job of negating, negating, negating every single object of desire or idea that um, can, you know, that I think can grant me freedom. And I come to this point of realizing no idea, no object is going to complete me. No idea, no object is going to be it and finalize and bring me to this end where I don't longer have to worry about anything anymore. That subject is really this point of saying, I have no other choice but to act in this necessary way that given the conditions I have, I am obligated if I want to preserve or I don't have to do that. And I can come back into ideology and just be satisfied, you know, in that way. But that's, you know, you could say it's an unethical dimension in that process. So I think even keeping with the idea that I had before about social media as a central concept or metaphor, that you can't really get to that point unless you have a certain concept in the Hegelian sense, an idea against which you're grappling with the contradictions you're facing as a subject, right? That, to me, is the scientific dimension to these things. I hope that makes sense. I think it does, and it, and, it, and it seems like then the new structuralist is, say, taking Althusser, but giving giving a little bit of a twist where here, where it seems like adding in Zizek and Lacan, you know, traversing the fantasy is is playing a role that that you were kind of describing just a moment ago about sort of traversing ideology as this as the sole determinant of the subject and if i can just jump in there because i think that the traversal of the fantasy is one of the most misunderstood categories in lacanian psychoanalysis because i think the idea of the traversal of the fantasy is often assumed to be you know we no longer fantasize we no longer you know think only in terms of the fantasy a better way to understand this idea of traversal of the fantasy is not you know, we get rid of the fantasy and then mm-hmm. we're realists. The right. idea of traversal of the fantasy is the acknowledgement that enjoyment only exists in the fantasy. That what you have is, and again, this goes back to this idea of the negation of limits, negation of prohibition. I'm going to get rid of these limits. I'm going to get rid of power. I'm going to get rid of prohibition. And then I'm going to have full enjoyment, which is not the case, I think, in Lacan and Hegel and Zizek. What you have is you start to grapple when you reach that point of subjective destitution. I'm the one who puts in place my own limits, my own prohibition. And by having the freedom to put in place my own limits, I can still go on enjoying in the form of the fantasy, recognizing the fact that I'll never be able to transcend that limit because I always impose it myself. And that's where real freedom lies. Right. And I think you made this, uh, you made this clear in several ways, but one of the ways that I really liked was this tension uh, that Zizek points out with this perversion, right? There's this perversion of, I know very well, as you mentioned earlier, I know very well about my fantasy and yet somehow I, I, I don't allow myself to, to go far enough to see that, that what I'm, I'm the one uh, in control or that, that, as you said, enjoyment lies within the fantasy itself. It's as though there's, there's this one last deception of, in the perverse moment, I have to push away that that knowledge, or that that somehow the fantasy is outside or or elsewhere, or or not, or or sort of has power over me. I'm not I'm not exactly sure a good way to to put it, but I'm no that makes that that makes a lot of sense, right? And that's one of the reasons why I say 
that the analysis of social media shows us that the form that ideology takes today is one of perversion. Mm-hmm. That when we go onto social media, we're willing back into existence the big other. When we think about, you know, all the various different friends and followers and even people we don't even know that are on there that are somehow watching us, that there's a kind of a willing back into existence, the form of the big other, because without the form of the big other, we can't enjoy in the same, our desire doesn't, isn't operative in the same way without it. So we know that the big other doesn't exist when we go on social media, but we act as if it does exist because it's one of the main mechanisms for procuring our enjoyment via desire. To me, that is why social media is a great example, a great structural example for understanding the form, the form that ideology takes, the form or the structure that ideology takes in specifically neoliberal capitalism. I think you can see this, you know, you can look at this in real time and see it, this process occurring relative to the way that Elon Musk with his purchase of Twitter is now considered. It's all the the rage is all about we want free speech, the free what the free speech that they want is a perver is they want the perverse enjoyment right like that's what they want the, tr- the they want to be able to troll and say whatever they want because that's how I, I don't know that's how social media structures things in the way that it appeals to a certain i don't know if this is my kind of crackpot theory that <laughs> about the drive having this indifference or this uh like it it doesn't really care whether the intensity is positive or negative and a lot of times negativity is going to have a stronger libidinal charge than a positive comment so like if someone says something nice about you on your post sure you get a, you get a little bit of enjoyment out of that but it's nowhere near the the palpable libidinal and en- energy that it gets imbued whenever you see a, like a ter- a terrible take like i see takes sometimes on twitter that that harrow my soul like <laughs> they make me want to kill myself in a in a sense like it's the takes are so bad and so cruel so if i could just jump in there so there's sure. a few yeah things. no please so do taylor asked me uh, uh you know uh, a while back now about the difference you know between modernism <laughs> and postmodernism and you know this is something so i had my, my little book on uh postmodern and postmodern theory and blade runners so this is something that i i think right. about Quite a bit. And I guess in the psychoanalytic sense, one way you could distinguish modernism and postmodernism is if in modernism, if modernism enjoyment is organized around obligatory prohibition, Mm -hmm. postmodernism is organized around obligatory enjoyment. It's not only that we're permitted or free to enjoy, but we're constantly obligated to enjoy. Now, another way to think about the difference between modernism and postmodernism is if modernism is this idea it's not just about rebellion, but it's also, you know, constantly making it new, making it new. The ethic of modern art is constantly making it new, making it new. Don't be commodity. Don't be kitsch. Don't be popular culture. Don't be mass culture. You constantly have to revolutionize the form from impressionism to surrealism to abstract expressionism and so forth. Everything is about railing against the form. And you can see Obviously, that this operates in concert with the capitalist mode of production, which constantly has to undermine itself, deterritorialize and re-territorialize, right, in different ways. So that when we get to postmodernism, this is what happens when the art of resistance and rebellion and undermining 
becomes itself the official ideology when it becomes the art of the gallery, the art of the museum, the art of the university, the art of criticism, that when it becomes the official art, when rebellion itself becomes the official art, when resistance itself becomes the official art, it's also becoming the official ideology. Everybody today wants to think of themselves as resisting or rebelling against something. But to do that, you have to have that perverse moment of putting something else into the position of power and authority. When somebody like Elon Musk is championing, you know, he's this bastion of free speech, right? And, you know, it's a complicated conversation because I do think that there is, I I, I am someone who still thinks that there's importance to uh, free speech. And right. I don't know what's the, the, the cancel culture uh, stuff, <laughs> you know, longer conversation. Yeah. But, you know, that perspective is making it look like, you know, you know, this, you know, big media now mogul billionaire, he's not the authority, he's not power, the person who's telling him to be respectful to racialized minorities and so on, right, you know, that all of a sudden that person is the big authority that we have to fight against. It's a weird situation where if everybody has to be interpolated as rebel or resistant, then the people that are being oppressed and exploited all of a sudden are made to appear rhetorically as figures of authority, Right. right? So it's a very, you know, odd dynamic here. It's a dialectical reversal. And this is why the listeners can't see it, but I'm doing that hand gesture (laughs) reversal. Yeah, because because you you do point out that that's that's how the there's this ironic moment where the alt right, where conservatism, where traditional values now becomes cutting edge and and rebellious. Right. And I don't want to mean one other thing I want to I want to stress here is that in saying those things, I want to emphasize that I do think that norms are important. I think that there is an important aspect of imposing norms. I think that we have to recognize that norms, however, are historical and in flux and they change. But I think that the instituting moment of the norm can help us not just to eliminate structure, but to build the structures that we require for our freedom. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize that every historical moment, things are constantly changing right? Nothing is ever staying the same. I think that's a key dimension of ideological fantasy when we think we can reach a point where everything will just be fine and dandy and end, right? Right. Everything is changing. But I think we have to impose certain norms in order to ensure that we have a structured society that provides freedom for everyone. I think it should be a norm to say that we should, you know, we should not be transphobic, right? Right. I think that it should be a norm to say that workers shouldn't be exploited, Right. right? I think that norms are not always repressive against the majority. Right. right? I think that the question is which norms can give us the most freedom. Right. And I think there's an ongoing, I'll use the word since I feel like uh, <laughs> it fits here. There's an ongoing dialectic between norms and values and, and how they, they feed and, and impact upon each other. And so I, I do think that that's part of what is, you know, when, when you see this call for return to traditional values, however plagued by nostalgia and fantasy it is, it is trying to re- reassert a norm that feels outdated. And so that, that's that's why I found it interesting, this question that you ask about when subversion becomes the master signifier or the, the however you want to put it, the, the dominant, then reactionary, traditional, the nostalgic becomes seemingly in appearance it becomes you know rebellious but on the other hand you ask this interesting question this way of putting it about the subversion of subversion obviously this ties into what we were just discussing but i wanted to know sort of 
that way of putting it dialectically, maybe, but how that how that came to you or, or how you see that sort of uh, continuing this this discussion? I guess I mean I don't think it's a it's an original. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. No. no, 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 it's okay because I mean it's an idea that I'll be honest. I mean it it, it came to me a very very long time ago. One mm-hmm. of my favorite cultural studies books is Dick Hebdige's Subculture: The Meaning of Style okay. and. In that book, you know, he has a really good, yes, dialectical way of reading the relationship between subculture and the mainstream. Insofar as subculture is, it's based always on the negation of the mainstream. But if we're talking about subculture, which I think is still a product of capitalism, mm-hmm. if we're talking about subculture in that way, we can see that in a you know commodified mass culture, that subculture is always constantly being diffused and reincorporated back into the mainstream right. because it's part of of the rebel cell, right? right? You can commodify symbols and commodities that are tied to subculture to diffuse and reintegrate the subculture back in. It's a very difficult, I mean, there's, of course, there's a certain threshold beyond which, you know, the ma- the mainstream will not diffuse aspects of certain cult subculture that are violent and extremist. But you can also see the way that certain, I guess, social mentalities can easily be distributed and um, reproduced so that, you know, different forms of subversion, you know, they seem like they're rebelling, but they're still, you know, part of the reigning ideology. Simple example, I've already mentioned the example of the troll, but Mm -hmm. if you think about neoliberal capitalism, and again, the whole biopolitical notion of the entrepreneur of the self and the investment in human capital, that we are all encouraged to think of ourselves as little individual businesses of one, and we spend our money to, if we do it, you know, according to the rational logic of the market, then we're encouraged to spend our money in a way that adds value to our human capital and builds our reputation because that's the way in which we're going to gain access to our needs via the market, via our ability to sell our human capital as commodified labor power and so on and so on and so on. Reputation management becomes the main way that we produce ourselves. So if you think about somebody like, you know, the figure of the troll, for instance, trolls are also in the game of reputation management, right? That their way of, you know, building their reputation is by tarnishing the reputation of other people. Mm. So there's that, you know, image of being a rebel resisting, you know, in a very, you know, crude way or whatever, right? But it's still following the very same logic of the neoliberal entrepreneurial ethic of reputation management. And social media is one of the key spaces we see that taking place. Yeah, I mean, I I liked your discussion of this objectification of the subject with this capital S self that we we build with our, as you said, with our reputation management, with our, uh, you know, with our LinkedIn accounts and, and, uh, you know, our profile pages and, and sort of uh, even even in grad school in the uh, when I was in, gosh, from grad school a dozen years ago, it's felt normal to talk about applying for the job market in academia as, as marketing yourself, right? This, you gotta brand this, yourself. You have to brand and, yourself. And you have to brand yourself. Exactly. So this, this type of so-called necessity as you, as you, as you know, of, of creating this, this self that is, uh, that becomes the brand is, uh, it is one of those things where this is perhaps one of the, the good things about Twitter, I've talked to Cooper about this versus Facebook. Even if Twitter allows for more anonymous trolling, there is a there is a sense of not everyone wants to to have their 
their face and their identity linked to to their ability to to interact on this platform. You know that that's what Facebook is for. If you want if you want that type of above board self, then that's there are platforms for it. But there's there is too a, a kind of freedom in that in that anonymity. And you you discuss this too in this uh, question of being perceptible, being imperceptible. This question of surveillance and share valence, which I I really appreciated and thought was was fascinating. So I, I don't really have a question here. I guess I, I'm just I'm just kind of you're getting the cogs in my the wheels spinning for me. You know the the best cogs in the you know in the wheels spinning that I love about <laughs> when I wrote this book. I finished the book and I thought to myself, I'm using the lure of social media, <laughs> and really I'm talking about philosophy and theory. Right. In all seriousness, I think it depends on what we want to get out of our use of social media because. I mean, let's not kid around. I know that, you know, we use some of us, you know, our real identities, our real names on these platforms. Many of us also use what is it called a burn account, right? Where you can hide your identity and you can act and say things that, you know, and it affords you a degree of freedom. Absolutely. I don't know if I have a real, you know, if I, anything I say about this right now is going to be a spontaneous thought. But I think (laughs) that that's also, again, Another way of showing the dilemmas of the kind of freedom that we're taught about in a liberal and capitalist society, which is really no freedom at all, right? Right. Because I think that what it shows us is that there's a very, there's a big lack of trust, right? I don't think you could have genuine, authentic freedom and open and rational, critical debate. And I'm not just saying this in a utopian Habermasian sense, (laughs) right? You know, the public use of reason, you have to have the private use of reason, the public use of reason, that you do have to have an ability to establish a form of trust that allows you to to be able to reason freely in the public. I I guess another way to think about this, and I've been thinking about this more and more recently, Mm -hmm. is the difference between the form of the big other in Lacan and the form of the analyst. Because one of the things that you see in Zizek's work in particular is trying to show that real emancipation depends on not the relationship to the grand autre, big other, but to the petit autre, the small other of the analytical relationship, I think it's useful to think about that in terms of the movement from the, you know, very famous, I think too famous dialectic of the Lord and Bondsman in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit to the very small sections where he talks about love in the section of family in philosophy of right. And I think that there's an argument to be made about the movement from the big other to the small other, from the grand autre to petit autre, in terms of the movement from the lord and bondsman to the love relationship in in the family section in philosophy of right. Because what you're getting in the lord and bondsman dialectic is that moment of making sure that you are recognized by the figure of the big other, right? Right. When you want to gain your your self-consciousness is a product of having yourself acknowledged, acknowledged by the big other in that situation. And that's what I think is happening on social media, trying to gain the attention, trying to gain the awareness of, you know, notice me, recognize me, see me, right? This is always happening. I'm almost singing a song from Tommy, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But then the real moment of transition is to move into that relationship of the love relationship. And there's something that I think you know, Lacan kind of talks about this in his se- in eighth seminar on the transference, that there's something about 
the not romantic love, but there's a love relationship in the analytical relationship. Right. Insofar as you're able to, with this, the one, well, you choose one other person, right? Not all the big other, but one person into whom you give your trust. Right. You say what you want openly, freely, the free association as possible, right? And in that process of doing that, you allow yourself to see the lacking in yourself via its objectification in the figure of the small other. Right. And by doing that, you build a sense of trust. And in building a sense of trust, you gain a sense of self-awareness and freedom that then allows permits you to go into the public and to, with that sense of, you know, gain that feeling of, of security and trust that allows you to engage in real critical and rational debate. Mm -hmm. Now, on the one hand, I'm saying that I think that we'd all benefit from having that kind of analytical relationship. It doesn't necessarily have to be in psychoanalysis. It can be in having a, a love relationship with some other person that allows you to have that kind of freedom. But I think we also have to remember that so many of us, this is impossible because of the material conditions of capitalist exploitation. Right. And this is something that gets amplified by social media. We're not able to have these kinds of relationships because our material lives are constantly undermined by these the system that exploits and puts downward pressure on us and stress and anxiety. Right. right? So this is not conducive. This is not a situation that's conducive to free and fair and open debate and dialogue. So that when you're in grad school, you feel comfortable being able to make a you know a valid, genuine, legitimate, and you know fair critique of people who are senior to you. Right? I mean, why shouldn't we want this? I don't blame a lot of people. I was in that situation too yeah. at one point. Right? There's a fear of doing it because it will impact your ability to support yourself. So these are all ways that, you know, in the, I guess the goal of uh, of the book is really to show how if you begin with an analysis of social media, you ultimately end up as a critique of capitalism. That's the other part of the the vehicle, right? It's it's not just that it's a book that seems like it's about social media, but it's actually philosophy and whatnot. It's a <laughs> book that seems like it's about social media, but in fact is sort of putting front and center the the class struggle, putting front and center the social antagonism inherent in social media, right? It's that problematization of the social in social media was what I thought was a nice way to transition from beginning to end. And that's, that's kind of what I was left with thinking about after reading was this sort of pushing towards the antagonism inherent in, um, that we're still sort of left with. And, and some of that along the way, I appreciated bringing in this aspect of capitalist realism where so much, and Zizek does this too, and he's not the only one, but so much of the current, as you know, as, as a film buff and a film theorist and film critic, you know how many movies are about the end of the world. And so this notion it's easier to think of the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And that rationally speaking from the dominant form of rationality, it seems like any alternative to capitalism is itself irrational, right? Because it it's antagonistic to those, what, to, to, to the class interests of, of the powers that be or however you want to phrase it. So formulating, formulating your book that way and having those different threads gave a lot of added value than something that would have potentially been a quote unquote, objectively neutral from some sort of, you know, I, that would be a fantasy position to, to participate in, right? That, that would be, uh, that would be the, the highest ideological gesture that you could have an objective analysis. And I say objective with scarecrows around it, right? Because you pointed out 
even in the algorithms, right? They're they're sort of infused with ideology because there's there's always a terminus and a sort of origin point through human sort of spheres. It's not it's not it's not some the algorithm sounds like it's completely asubjective and a human, but it's sort of infused with desire, if you want to use that term broadly. Yeah, and it's infused with human desire because I mean these are these are tools that absolutely are organized and programs programmed with uh, human social and political interest always implied. Now, I don't want to get one of the things I don't want to give the impression is I don't believe that I'm a techno utopianist. And I don't believe <laughs> that I'm a techno dystopianist. Right. Because what I think always within a Marxist framework technology allows us to do is to gain knowledge of our material conditions and our political conditions that the technology is never neutral, let's say. But what it does is it opens up a window for us to understand the material conditions and the political conditions in which we're we're living and there's a couple of things here right one is i say i'm not a techno dystopian because and part of the reason why i say i want to accelerate the social media metaphor not only for the imminent critique but also to recognize that in different material and political conditions the technologies that we've developed and this is i guess it's a very traditional marxist perspective that the you know fragment of machines you say right that the technologies we built in capitalism can put to different social and political uses can be a wing in our emancipation. And I speak from a very personal perspective here because I mean, you may have noticed from time to time, I'm putting my cell phone to my shoulder as I'm a type one diabetic. And what I'm doing is I'm using my mobile phone to check my blood sugar. I have a sensor that it's attached to my arm and it checks my blood sugar. And there's technology in development right now to uh, link a glucometer like the one on my mobile phone to an insulin pump via of cloud technology in a technology, you know, we talk about, you know, something like the Kenyan Latus, right? But it's a technology that is being organized and developed as an artificial pancreas that is relying on cloud technology, algorithmic media, mobile new media, and so on and so forth. And this is absolutely an enabling, enabling aspect of the technology that's being yeah. developed in the same way within capitalism, right? So it's an example of, you know, the, you know, again, the forces of production of growing the relations of production. Absolutely. But in terms of, you know, the dystopian utopian framework, mm -hmm. you know, there have been moments when I have thought that not utopia, but dystopia is actually a much more liberatory form of narrative. If we think about it in the context of, and I, I wouldn't necessarily put it this way, but here I'll say, if we think about it in the terms of the, you know, the Freudian noctroglotite, right, backwards and retroactivity, that if you yeah. think about retroactivity, if you're imagining the future, even the capitalist realist, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world, the end of capitalism kind of sense, then we're imagining the future is lacking. We're seeing the lack in the future, which retroactively brings us to the position of the present, that right. in order to be able to see the lack in the present, we have to imagine the lack in the future. Just think about the future as this shithole society, <laughs> yeah. understanding it that way, that we can think about, well, you know, holy shit, you know, right now is the really shithole society. There's the lack in the existing form. There's always the, you know, there always is, I want to stress, always is this dimension of lack, but the question is what is to be done, right? Yeah. And yeah. if we construct the narrative, you know, retroactively in that sense, and if we see that the technologies that are being developed within capitalism do have this liberatory, emancipatory potential, then it helps us to create this sense of narrative, right? Again, back to Jameson's cognitive mapping, always historicized. It gives us a sense of 
what is necessary, what is necessary to enhance the freedoms that we we aspire towards, right? This mm-hmm. is a key thing that we shouldn't just, you know, dismiss liberal and bourgeois conceptions of freedom and equality. We should try to actualize them and make them material, right? This is what I think has to be done. I like that. I, I mean, I, I think that that gives... You you brought up uh, Latouse, which I know when Cooper and I were first <laughs> discussing it, we uh, we <laughs> called it. We're Southern boys, so we called it Lat House because I, I wasn't thinking about I it. Like that, I, I, yeah. The, the the Lat the Lat House. Uh, I'm gonna have to say it that way from now on. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I know Coop, you, you you've been. I know this is something you've been fascinated about. You 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 may have had a question about about this about the the Latouse, which gets brought up a few times in in your book, Matthew. Yeah, uh, I definitely do. I want to even maybe go back to something that I think something interesting that Nick Land says about capital with regard to this, I think, is that capital is escape. Capital is deterritorialization. So anytime that you're trying to get outside of capital, you're doing capital, which is the really insidious aspect of it. And you can kind of like look through this through the lens of our podcast because – what are we doing? Yeah, I guess we are sort of providing some type of voice against the capitalist, hegemonic capitalism to some degree, right? But as we, in so doing, we are consuming products, we're participating in the market, we're re- engaging in reputation management, et cetera. We're trying to build a brand, even though we, and again, we know very well. Don't, don't hate the player, yet, hit the game. Right? <laughs> yeah, obviously, we know very well, and yet, because there is a question of what what does one do when perversion, when escape is already when escape is part of the machine itself, like whenever it can sort of it can negate your negation faster than you can even develop it because it's always sort of one step ahead of our desire because it's sort of feeding our desire. And when you're attaching this to something like a global communications network, and algorithms, et cetera, then that becomes even a further barrier that we have to sort of break through. So it's like sort of wind up at this sort of stalemate because capitalism can always sort of develop these new axiomatics to capture your revolutionary desire and coordinate off and prevent it from spilling over into the, you know, the social field. I don't know if you have a response to that at all. I I, I do have a response. And I think that my, my first response, well, there's you said a lot of things, so I'm going to say <laughs> Sure, please, please okay. do. So the, the first thing is, this is why I think, and even within the history of Marxism at various different points, if we go beyond just, again, the critique of political economy, I don't think that we can transform or make our society more liberated. We can't emancipate if we're only focusing on the mode of production, because I think that all change is going to have to take place at the political level to change the law, if you want to put it that way, right? And I guess the way this is, again, where, and maybe you disagree, but this is where I have a critique of Deleuze and Guattari, even if you want to take it, I don't know how far you want to go with this, but the accelerationist argument of, you know, accelerate to the limits. What is the, you know, you know, accelerate, accelerate, you know, push beyond its limits. So it implodes if we're talking about Nick Land or whomever, right? That's the idea. Whereas I think that that still follows the logic of desire, constant negation, 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 negation. And you're always just trying to destroy the structure, destroy the structure, destroy the structure. My argument is no more destroying the structures. We have to impose limits. We have to create new forms of prohibition. We have to create new norms. 
we have to create new structures, new laws, and so on and so forth. That it's by, as I said before, that when we're traversing the fantasy, the whole idea is realizing that I have the freedom to impose limits, and then my enjoyment is strictly in the fantasy. And I think that collective action and class struggle is this process of determining what are the norms, what are the laws, what are the limits, what are the prohibitions that we want to put in place as part of our project of universal emancipation. So that's one thing I would say, that we still have to engage. And this is why I think that the concept in the Hegelian sense is important, because the concept or the metaphor, as I put it, is the rhetorical dimension by which we come to some sense of mutual consensus around the prohibition, the laws, the norms we want to we want to build. No more destruction. My friend Anna Cornblue is very good in her book, The Order of Forms. You know, no more politics of destruction. We have to build structures. This is what Lacan is doing too. When in the analytical relationship, you produce the new master signifier that gives new structure, a new framework to the way in which we're grasping the conditions in which we're we're living. Not necessarily material change, but we change the way we understand the material conditions and then we can act. Now, the other thing you said, I mean, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, so I don't mean <laughs> to put it on you. Oh, no, no worries. <laughs> but I have a problem, and it comes out of Marx too, because I think that mm. Marx is wrong in his early writing and even in his later writing in Capital and his understanding of the negation of the negation, mm. because I think that there's a much too linear understanding of the negation of the negation. You notice I've been saying quite a bit that this logic of desire follows this process of negation, 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 negation. I get an object, I think the object is it, but it's not it, I want to go to the next one. Negation, negation, negation. And every time I'm doing that, I'm also at the same time imposing the power that's prohibiting me outside of me, external to me, right? That there's the external determination or the, um, um, the external reflection, right? Every time I negate, I'm externalizing my lack onto some figure of the other. And negation of the negation or the determinate negation, right, is that moment of then I come back. I'm not just always negating. I'm realizing that I'm the one who created the prohibition in the first place. I'm the one who put in the limit. So there's a cyclical dimension to it, right? Not a linear progression of history, but it's that subjective moment of realizing that I'm the one who has the power to impose that limit to create the structures of my freedom and my liberation. Now, I want to say that this is also at the same time for me a kind of a self-critique, because one thing that I have, I, I do this in the chapter on the love algorithm, where we're talking about the swipe left, swipe right, that we have that relation to this uh, into our enjoyment in terms of a relation of affirmation of the phallic order or the negation of the phallic order, if we're talking about it in terms of the feminine and masculine logic. And my self-critique is that I think that I realized after the fact that it's much too Maoist. It's a much too Maoist understanding hmm. of the logic of negation and affirmation, because one of the things Mao will say, and again, he's, you know, he's drawing off of, you know, relation to response to in some ways to Stalin, who is also in some ways responding to angles. And I don't want to lay it all on angles because I don't think it's angles fault. But there's all this talk, you know, taking away the logic of the negation of negation. Mao says that, you know, there's no such thing as the negation of the negation. There's just affirmation and negation, affirmation and negation. And I don't think that I'm as explicit enough in the social media book in talking about how the negation of the negation is an important subjective dimension to thinking about the process of our liberation. It's only in the moment of the negation of negation that we can arrive at some kind of consensus around an historical concept that allows us to develop the kind of imminent critique we require and the imposition of new structure and framework of our liberation. 
So it's a small pet peeve, but I think that mm-hmm. a lot of work still needs to be done on rethinking the category of negation of negation, which is something that I'm trying to do in some of my more recent work. And I think it starts with Marx. I think that in the philosophical notebooks, 1844, and then of course near the end of Capital in the um, um, primitive accumulation section, mm-hmm. I think that there's it's too much of a linear conception of negation and negation. Linear again in the sense that you know when we talk about the flipping, uh, you know Marx flips Hegel on his head so he might think with his feet. You know if you think about it as inverted triangles, that his argument is that Hegel starts from the heavens, then goes down to earth, and then the negation of the negation is to go up back into the the heavens for Hegel, whereas for Marx you begin with the material you negate and you go back up to the heavens and then you negate again and you go back down to the material reality. I think it's far too linear. I think that if you, you know, you read it in the beginning of Hegel's Science of Logic, that what we're talking about is a true infinity that is in the form of the circle, where you go out and you negate and you return back to your point of origin, but with another new perspective. This might be a good place to discuss your current writings, because you've already intimated some of that, which you said there was a, a kind of a new engagement with humanism. And I, and I suppose this is involved in your current studies with uh, returning to, to Hegel and looking at the negation of the negation. So is that is that sort of part of your current project at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say at an earlier point in our conversation, I was talking about Althusser, that mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was Zizek or maybe Todd McGowan said this to me, or maybe I just made it up and I or <laughs> anything. This is my um, yesterday. But um, I think that, you know, a good way to think about Lacan, maybe maybe other people have said it, that Lacan, there's almost a, a, a useful, you know, coincidence or mixing of Lévi-Strauss and Sartre. That if you think, I mean, part of what I I feel like I'm doing, even with new structuralism, is thinking about the element of the subject as it's, you know, emerges in the lack in the structure. And it was really, you know, a lot of my reading and critique of post-humanism that really got me onto this. And of course, not without Zizek's influence, because, you know, one thing that people don't acknowledge about Zizek's work enough is how good he is at reading the historical conjuncture. I remember, I guess, maybe it was 2010, maybe a little earlier around then, that, you know, I was talking to, you know, he started asking me questions about new materialism, and I had no idea what he was talking about. Like, I had read some of that, plus, but I really, in his critique of post-humanism, but I really didn't know, you know, the way he was trying to reframe dialectical materialism as a useful challenge to a lot of the, you know, the, the so-called new materialisms. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's interesting to me because a lot of my rethinking of a dialectical humanism draws very much on Zizek's work. And he and I have debated this. He has a point where he, in his new book, Surplus Enjoyment, where he challenges me on my category of humanism, and I have a retort that's coming out, very friendly exchange. But a lot of what I'm trying to do is I think that there's a huge mistake in a lot of the Hegelian Marxist humanisms of the 20th century, that if you look at somebody like Lefebvre or Eric Fromm, I think that you get, you know, you get better work I think in the work of Raya Danayevskaya and in early Herbert Marcuse. But I think that a lot of the 20th century Marxist humanisms were Hegelian influenced Marxist humanisms. We're still thinking about this, you know, negation of the negation and the recombination of some kind of closed totality, some kind of closed whole that does reach, you know, the end of history, the influence of Kozhev, of course, mm-hmm. or even 
around the same time, like Lukash in in different ways, who right. totally ignores the dialectics of nature, which I think is a huge mistake. And then I think that it's worth rethinking, you know, the late Engels. Um, you guys had a great episode um, on rethinking Engels' mm-hmm. um, dialectics of nature. I think that there's a very important humanist dimension to this that has been ignored in the right. sense that, you know, Engels will say in, I think it's in Auntie During, that, you know, it's a classic example that freedom has no necessity. This is part of the way that he's understanding the dialectics of nature. But my framework and thinking about it in terms of a science and not as a moralism, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. is to think about how all of our projects of freedom have to, in some ways, involve centering human needs and human subjectivity. And that doesn't mean to the exclusion of the non-human, right. because you cannot have a thriving and free human culture and society, a global human thriving uh, society, if we don't take care of our natural conditions. Right. right? Now, one of the right. things I don't I don't want to do is ontologize nature, because I think that nature is a biophysical necessity and not necessarily an ontological necessity. I worry that by making nature into an ontological necessity, we end up doing part of what Stalin was doing in, you know, arguing that, you know, the reflection theory, that we're just, you know, as good communists, you know, Stalin would say, we're just reflecting what the, you know, what is necessary in nature. For me, it's important to think the difference because I think ontologically, we have to understand our environment not just nature, but our environment as produced by us and also incomplete. I think that the understanding, ontological understanding of an incomplete reality gives us the freedom we require to act ethically without guarantees. There's no natural logic of history that we're all just doing the good work of history. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. We have to understand in every given historical condition, we have to act and think out of what is necessary in that moment. But for me, a dialectical humanism means thinking about what universal human needs do we center and privilege in the way in which we're going to structure and frame all of the building of the conditions that we need. And a lot of so much of that still involves thinking about what's good for the environment, what's good for the non-human, non-human animals and so forth. It doesn't mean that we have to equally think the value of everything, because, look, we've just come out of this, you know, crazy. We're we're still in it. Right. In many different ways, the, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. Right. I don't care. Sorry to COVID-19, but I don't want to, you know, give you equal living and longevity here, right? I'm sorry to people who might disagree, but I'm going to center human needs and human interests in that situation. You did have a a nice section in your book that we, in Algorithmic Desire, where you discuss some of this. And maybe part of the genesis is, is already latent in there, where you sort of disagree with the move that we see in some of the movements that I talked about earlier in assemblage theory, for example, in sort of decentering anthropocentrism, which there are perhaps, you know, you, you've cultivated in, in a certain way, as you've already said, because it's not a human supremacy that you're after, obviously. But on the other hand, the, the downside is anthropomorphizing nature and, uh, and objects to a certain extent, right? And so you kind of make this other gesture where it's like, no, we, we should keep the anthropocentrism, be it widely you know, varied and, and nuanced from just classical forms. But I like that you're you're kind of, I mean, you've already said it, that it's not about anthropomorphizing objects and sort of 
giving them equal status, but it is about keeping an equity, I think, for these non-human objects and realizing that, yes, while humans don't necessarily need to sort of promote themselves as as the sort of height of reason or rationality and these other, again, these other kind of classical forms of human supremacy, if, if I could just use that term. But you still think that, I mean, obviously, if class struggle is the vector through which I think your thought is continuing with and that that has to take on an anthropocentric form. Otherwise, otherwise it also becomes jettisoned and secondary, right? You're right. I mean, I think that it's wrong to think of anthropocentrism as a form of human suprematism. I think that also what people talk about in terms of anthropocentrism or in critiques of humanism are really talking about a critique of Eurocentrism or ethnocentrism or phallocentrism. And I think that the problem is that, you know, this is one of the things I love actually in Althusser's work, that he has a great essay on Marx and Freud, where he shows that what Marx and Freud are both doing is grappling with the contradictions of bourgeois society and bourgeois subjectivity. That Marx's project is to show that society is not organized around individual action and individual freedom, that class struggle is the motor of history. Freud is also trying to show that it's not the individual ego that is the master right. in the house, but that the unconscious is also an objective driving force of human action. So we're always already decentered. Yes. Right? Yes. We're yes. always right. already decentered. So if you're always already decentered, our political project has to be one of centering the subject. The subject, and doesn't mean, you know, to the exclusion of everyone, but we have to center a certain set of ideas and arguments and values. You know, freedom, reciprocity, care, these are human concepts and they're historical concepts, right? right? These are concepts that have developed in the tradition of secular humanism. And as a universalist, you know, dialectical and universal humanism is, I think, the way we have to go. So it's not just a Eurocentric humanism. It's grappling with the fact that if we're going to be universal, we have to be able to bring into the framework of the totality the various different needs. When I say equity, right, as opposed to equality, the sociological category of equity, we're talking about how different people with different bodies in different places in the world have different needs. And our goal should be to recognize and realize the different needs of everyone so that we arrive at an equality of outcome. And this, to me, has been very much a part of the historical project of secular humanism. And my goal is to think about it scientifically and dialectically, but also in terms of universality. No one is free unless we are all free, I think should be our motto. Now, we'll talk about anthropocentrism and anthropomorphism. I think that a lot of new materialist and posthumanist discourse is arguing for anthropomorphism as a strategy to get out of anthropocentrism. And right. I can't see how that's possible if we are still centering human qualities. When we anthropomorphize, we're still centering the figure of the human and applying it to the non-human. I don't see how there's anything that is non-anthropocentric in that perspective. So my argument is that not in a sense of a philosophical anthropology as opposed to ontology, but that in some ways the route to thinking ontologically and ethically is via reading the historical understanding of anthropocentrism. I hope that makes sense. That does. That actually really does. Uh, and it, it kind of nicely ties together some of those threads that, that were in your recent book. So I, I kind of see a continuity then. going. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, it, it's there. I mean, I wrote the introduction. That was the last thing I wrote. Okay. Right? So it's very much 
you know, I'm already starting that moment. I'm already starting to think about these things. That was really where I was like, okay, you know, this is where it's going to continue. And the beginnings in the introduction, I, you know, I'm, I'm grappling with new materialism, post-humanism, accelerationism, and that's really the beginning of what will hopefully, in, you know, at some point be the next book. And I, I like that you wrote the intro last because I always tell tell my students that that's what they should do. I just think that that's the best way of doing it. I mean, you can start writing in the middle, but if you write it last, you've already got a vision of the whole, uh, I think, am I wrong? Doesn't Hegel say something about like, if you've understood the preface to the phenomenology, you've kind of understood the whole. So there's, there's something to that. I know we've had you two hours, Matthew, and I, I appreciate your time, but I don't want to cut out my co-host. I definitely know he <laughs> may have had a question or two on, on Baudrillard, but I will rest my case. So <laughs> Coop, I hand it, I hand it over to you, my friend. Sure. Yeah. As long as we're not keeping you, I guess maybe one thing we could, I guess we kind of talked a little bit about some of these other issues, but maybe you could bring into a little bit stronger relief. What role you see the symbolic playing just because I want to kind of like maybe bounce this a little bit off of Baudrillard says, which I think is not you know, not that different from kind of what I was describing relative to Nick Land, but I just would like to get your take on this. And I'll read from uh, Symbolic Exchange and Death for the audience. We will not destroy the system by a direct dialectical revolution of the economic or political infrastructure. Everything produced by contradiction will only feed back into the machine and give it impetus following a circular distortion similar to a Mobius strip. We will never defeat it by following its own logic of energy, calculation, reason, and revolution. We must therefore displace everything into the sphere of the symbolic where challenge, reversal, and overbidding are the law so that we can respond to death only by an equal and superior death. This is not coming from a sort of antagonistic. I just want to kind of like work through how you see this symbolic in contrast to this, to Baudrillard's reading. And I think you may have done some of this work already, but. No, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. And I have, I guess you could say. A complicated relation, or you know, in our relationship status, it's complicated. <laughs> because you know, I you know, I really appreciate some of his earliest work on the consumer society. Right. Some of the work that's influenced by Guy Debord, who's been a, a figure. It doesn't come through in this book, but Guy Debord and the Situationists have always been very fascinating and interesting to me. So Baudrillard's, you know, Same. jumping off of that work has always been fascinating to me. I guess, and again. I'm sure some might disagree with me. There's something, I guess, there's a limit to me in this kind of reading uh, from Baudrillard that I, I worry is too nihilistic. And I, I don't yeah. know where to go from there. Yeah. Right. And I still love his work as a, you know, somebody trained in media and communication studies, the, you know, his concept of hyperreality and the way in which he's thinking about representation are still very important to me and very interesting in the way that I conceptualize the cultural logic of postmodernism, right? That there's, you know, something about the fragmented reality in the hyperreal that I think is tied to the Jameson notion of the breakdown of the signifying chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the loss of the referent is the key, right. you know, dimension of this. In terms of the symbolic, I guess, again, building off of Jameson, especially in his postmodernism work, I think that there's two useful ways to think about the symbolic in the Lacanian sense. One is, of course, the symbolic order of the big other, the field of language, meaning, authority, and so on. But I think we also have to think the symbolic in terms of the process of the talking cure and the form of narrative construction, that what the symbolic also does 
is it create in, in the in the process, the rhetorical process of creating narrative, it does accomplish that moment of cognitive mapping where I have to narrativize, right? I have to interpret, right? The symbolic is also key to interpretation here, that it's by interpreting and narrativizing and establishing the concept in the Hegelian sense, that that's only by doing that that I can gain a sense of the ethical dimensions of my situation. A good way to think about what I really want to do is to apply all of this to thinking, you know, the big Leninist question of what is to be done. I think this is, it's an ethical project, right? And not, and I want to distinguish again in the Hegelian sense, you know, between morality, moral tat and um, cyclic tight. I can't mm. say that properly. Cyclic tight. My German is horrible, right? But ethics, right? Ethics in the sense of not what we ought to do, but ethics in the sense of what is necessary, right? What is necessary for us to do? So when I look at that passage in Symbolic Exchange and Death, I see he's coming up to a deadlock. We've reached this deadlock, and he's almost in some ways undermining the deadlock, saying there's not really much we can do because, you know, is this, you know, we'll always just be reincorporated back into the system, that all the all dialectical contradictions will always just be brought back into the political and the economic infrastructure. I think that's a limited way of thinking about history because things are always changing. Things are always changing all the time. That's something that if in my own humanist approach, that we have to think things are changing all the time. To what extent are we capable of getting into the driver's seat of the train of history? We have to be the ones getting in the driver's seat in the train of history. And I think that we have to rethink the category of planning in a way that's different from the kind of economism you see in Stalinism, the Stalinian deviation of the Soviet Union. But I think that in terms of the accelerationist project, Mikhail Rozowski and Lee Phillips, The People's Republic of Walmart, I think is a superb book because mm -hmm. it shows us again the way that the technologies emerging out of 21st century capitalism are helping us to rethink our ability to have democratic planning, socialist democratic planning in another new way. I don't think that we can think this without any kind of democratic planning that, again, puts us in the driver's seat of history, the train of history. So that's how I think it. And it's not because I feel antagonistic towards Baudrillard. I'm very appreciative of so much of his work. I just worry that this kind of perception leads us only down a kind of a, you know, a form of immobilization And right. when we feel the stress and the pressure and the anxiety of the system, because it's so heavy and weighs down on us in this way, I think this is another way in which the capitalist ideology is winning. It's the capitalist realism that's right. coming back into yeah. it. I can't do anything. So I just have to grin and bear it or just regress into my own little space and die sad and alone or whatever. Right. right. So I, I worry. The perverts discourse or whatever. Of, I know very well and or the fetishes. Of, yeah. I know very well. And yet, yeah. But even, you know, more than just perversion, I think that there's a dimension of obsessional neurosis here, because the whole problem of obsessional neurosis in some way is that I'm never able to act because I can always, I'm so self-reflexive of everything I do, I can right. see how my efforts are always going to be fraught. The I problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be or not to be, of course, right? I guess well, that might that maybe that's that the question. question. <laughs> maybe that's the question that Baudrillard is asking with the uh, symbolic exchange and death to be or not to be. But that's well, another, could be that's another my, deviation. My only uh, addition to this is when when Baudrillard says, you know, when when the system gives us back little deaths in the form of wages or whatever, I have to wager my spectacular and immediate death. That's the only thing that can't be counter gifted. I, I kind of think to myself, 
Yeah, okay, sure, you go first, <laughs> right? That's part and parcel of the nihilism, right? Because as you're kind of saying, there's this, the limit is literally just throwing yourself sort of into the into the abyss. One thing just to add here, right? Yes. And I think Alenka Zupancic is wonderful on this point, is really when we're talking about the symbolic, understanding the way in which the signifier falls into the signified. Even if you think about, and it's, it's an important lesson to learn about the program of narrative construction and interpretation, that when we are thinking objects, we are constructing them in the form of the symbolic. When we think about nature, for instance, nature is an abstract category that only exists for us. It's brought to our consciousness. Not just that it only exists. I mean, of course, it has material existence. But right. as an object of consciousness, it only exists for us at the level of discourse. When the symbolic, right, the symbolic here, the signifier is entering into the signified in this way, so that when we conceive it as an object of consciousness in the form of the symbolic, that allows us to think about the ethical dimensions of what we should do about nature. This is how, for me, the symbolic can operate at this level of narrative construction interpretation insofar as it allows us to think about the material implications of our action on the object. That was my real question was like, okay, given this position of the real is sort of foreclosed, what are the sort of mechanisms? What can we mobilize in the symbolic? If that's the case, if if the sort of real is foreclosed, what powers or what opportunities are there in the symbolic? So. You kind of anticipated what I really wanted to get to anyways. <laughs> and I mean, again, when we say the real is foreclosed, I don't know if that's how I would want to frame it. Right. I, would... I guess I would say the real. That's how I would say it because because I'm, I'm partial to Laura Well. But, you know, but go ahead, Matthew. Yeah, sorry. Well, up. I mean, I was just going to say. Ignore think... my bad terminology. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is where for me the symbolic is important, right? Because language, you know, has legs. <laughs> But, but I guess I would say that for me, I mean, my understanding, and again, I read Lacan very much through Zizek's Hegelian interpretation, mm-hmm. and I think that it's important to think the real as something similar to the form of the contradiction, where the real only emerges at the at the limit points of the symbolic. The real emerges at the level of the contradiction that we grasp in the symbolic. This is the very important distinction between the move from Kant to Hegel, that in the antinomies of pure reason, what Kant sees as a limitation, Hegel sees as a positive condition of existence. It's not right. that contradiction prevents us from knowing, but the contradiction is a material condition of existence and reality. So when we grasp it, that's when we see the real emerging at the limit point of the symbolic. So I wouldn't say that the real is foreclosed. I'd say that the real represents or it emerges at the limit of the symbolic, at the point of contradiction in the symbolic. That's good. And that's food for thought, I think, because that's that's going to keep us thinking. And honestly, Matthew, I, 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 appreciated, I appreciated your book. I appreciated you working through some of this with us and the, the sort of the passion and the energy you brought, because that kind of stuff is, if you could bottle it, you know, <laughs> you could make, make a fortune on it. I know that's not your, maybe your goal, but. Uh, if you could make a fortune doing philosophy in this way, I would <laughs> really like to know. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed having this conversation guys. And I'm sorry if, you know, I, I know I talk a lot, so. But see, this is the, this is. It's the about fl- the guest for us. I, think. I mean, for for us, it's about the guest. For us, it's just about a forum for you to talk about the things you're passionate about. About, I mean, you're you're obviously passionate about it. If you write a book on it, I think, unless you know, you're <laughs> some some sort of masochistic enjoyment <laughs> in posting cringe, which I do think that that's 
that's like the opposite of the troll, right? Is the ones who want attention and post the worst takes. So, but I, I didn't see your book in that light, but I do think that what we try to do is allow for our guests to speak. And in a certain way, you have to do the hard work. We we just get to kind of set up little softballs for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, we, but we all get a little bit of uh, enjoyment out of it. And uh, thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, absolutely. And this episode will be out in two weeks. So we'll be in touch and let you know when it drops. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, to the work you've got in store because you've already got me thinking sort of along the tracks you've, you've set. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you uh, what you put out there in the future. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. I've had a lot of fun doing this, guys. So well, thanks again. We're going to stick around for a minute, but we'll let you go and enjoy enjoy your weekend, okay? Yeah, have a great Friday. All right. You too, guys. All right. Take it easy. Thanks again. Bye. And that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.